The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. In the next hour, you'll hear from some phenomenal people and healthcare leaders and learn how their challenges became opportunities. Our goal is to show you how you can positively influence your own life experience and purpose and achieve success. And now, here is your host, Danielle Delaney. Hi, this is Danielle Delaney, and you're listening to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. Welcome to the show. And today, my guest is Evan Haynes. Evan Haynes is a dedicated husband and father of two beautiful little girls, which comes before work, and he is a co-founder of an innovative drug treatment program called Aloe House Recovery Centers, formerly known as Acadia Malibu. Evan grew up with addiction problems all around him and for many years suffered from his own issues, and he then embarked on a years-long recovery journey of his own. And along the way, Evan became obsessed, as he puts it, with solving the riddle of addiction treatment. Uh, Welcome, Evan. It's great to have you here today. Thank you, Danielle. It's great to, to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, absolutely. I thought of you immediately. Um, I never know which of my listeners are new and what countries they're listening in, so hello to everyone. And the story behind this show is my own recovery, my own journey through trauma and addiction and everything else, pretty much, PTSD, all sorts of things. And what we do here is try to talk to people about what, what's possible for your own journeys of recovery and to survive all sorts of different things. And uh, I really work with a lot of, I, I do counseling psychology, and I work with a lot of the rehabs in Malibu, California, and the ones who've appeared on this show are honestly the top five or six that I really believe in as far as rehabilitation facilities for addiction and recovery, as well as sober livings and independent outpatient facilities. And Evan, I think the world of Aloe House Recovery Center, and no, I would love it you. if you can tell, you're welcome. I love it. I mean, it's beautiful. I, lo- I love that I get to take tours. Being in private practice means I get to take mm-hmm. tours and meet clients and work with various places as an aftercare person. But it's just, yours takes my breath away. The alpacas, the ponies, like none of that hurts. You know, it's just gorgeous. But, and you have a great staff, but, and you're wonderful. But I just know that you've got a philosophy behind, behind what you believe there at Aloe House Recovery and what makes it different. Could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, yeah, we're very kind of conscious about what we're doing. We're, we're conscious about the way we fit into the uh, history of drug treatment, which we're fascinated by. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think historically drug treatment came from a kind of punitive place. Um, you know, there's the idea that it was like a moral failing uh, to be addicted mm-hmm. to something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same way, you know, mental health was treated in this country and other countries for many, many years, um, you know, where they did weird things like spun people around or certainly locked them up in um, subhuman conditions. Mm-hmm. And uh, now at least, you know, we've come to believe probably since the 1950s or 1960s that addiction is a disease. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really interesting uh, literature out now that's even challenging that concept and looking at it uh, as a, 
that it may be something even more interesting than that. Um, mm-hmm. That, you know, even to say, well, I have a disease, uh, kind of can create a stigma that will actually go on to hinder someone in their full recovery from you know, right. what it is we're dealing with. Because frankly, yeah, there's people who, uh, you know, wouldn't fit the profile of a typical addict, but have, you know, plenty of recovery work of their own to do. Mm-hmm. I agree. So I agree. We've, yes. So we've come along and, you know, we've, uh, we call ourselves leaders in the emerging uh, compassionate care model of drug treatment. So, you know, the very first thing that means is we treat everyone with dignity and respect. Um, you know, as an adult, say, if you came to our treatment center, you know, you're not going to have some, you know, 20-something-year-old telling you to get out of bed um, right. per se. I mean, hopefully you're going to get out of bed, but you're going to get out of bed <laughs> because you're looking forward to the day. You're looking forward to, you know, what kind of new and, uh, you know, interesting things you're, you're going to be up to today in a very beautiful setting, like you pointed out. But so there's there's even, I think, in treatment today, kind of an unconscious um, kind of lingering shadow of that old approach. And if we're not very aware, you know, we can be part of the problem as opposed to part of the solution, you know, or if we're not careful as, uh, you know, our staff, you know, know and have experienced, we can uh, experience uh, counter-transference. We can, we can really dislike our clients. And right. what's interesting, though, is that is usually where they're reminding us of something, maybe someone who, you know, gave us troubles in our life, uh, maybe some part of ourselves that's not um, kind of, that we're not consciously aware of and that we don't accept. So... What's interesting is to do our work and to do it well, we have to be really kind of aware of ourselves. We have to be in our own recovery and our own growth or else we risk kind of transferring our own, you know, stuff, our own baggage onto our clients. Oh, I completely agree with that. It's like paging Dr. Freud because seriously, it's, mm-hmm. there's so many things and so many components to helping someone t- helping someone, pardon me, through their own journey. And sometimes we people do tend to project, and you have to be very careful not to do that. And I've, put, I've had some people in your program. We've had a few mutual, mutual patients, if you will, or clients, and I know they've been really, really pleased with, with the treatment modalities there and with the staff there. I know Rachel is amazing. Jody is amazing. And I love that they've called me also for I have a sober companioning business, as you know, and they've called to make sure someone has a companion when they need them. And mm-hmm. it's just a really conscious, aware process of helping people and healing people. And no one there has ever told me that it's felt punitive to them. And I think it's really important that you and your staff are so aware of that, of that transference possibility and making sure that's not what happens because those of us that have had issues in our past, you know, we have to be really careful as healthcare practitioners to, you know, first do no harm and to really be helping that person and not projecting our own stuff onto someone else. And, uh, and to not create any dislike or discord or disharmony going on and to live life, lives that are not incongruent with what we're trying to lead other people to. And that's what I find there well, is that exactly people right. really are living lives that are congruent with what, you, what, what your philosophy is. I think it's amazing. And the, and the future of that, because to me the logical extension of that, you know, is, is really kind of questioning even what we're teaching as far as ideals. And um, you kind of see it a bit in the 12 steps. You're supposed to have every single de- defect of character removed from you. And, mm-hmm. 
you know, so here we are facilitating groups where we're telling people, you know, what to do and what not to do. And frankly, you know, we probably do some of those things. Exactly. So, we're not perfect. You know, the, 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 we're not perfect. So the challenge, I think, in the future is maybe creating more realistic goals, um, you know, to not kind of continue this, uh, you know, philosophy of per- perfectionism that, you know, certainly permeates school, uh, mm-hmm. permeates drug rehab to a certain degree, this kind of you know, uh, almost impossible purification, which, you know, I think, you know, more like Carl Jung, you know, we mm-hmm. would want our clients to kind of just feel at home in themselves and accept themselves the way they are. And then, you know, just naturally some of the sharper edges, you know, of those uh, issues that they may have um, soften. So, you know, someone who's kind of anti-authoritarian, and we mm-hmm. are a little bit, um, you know, has, has a problem with, with, with authority, uh, you know, doesn't take orders, well, there's your CEO. So, exactly. You know, that's why we're where we are. Look at these, that's exactly right. So we, we need to look at these people a little differently. And the very first thing we do, you know, to teach them to accept themselves is to accept them ourselves exactly how they are, you know, to meet them where they're at. Exactly, um, meeting them where as, they are at their level. It's, it's so important mm-hmm. to be eye-to-eye mm-hmm. and to not be lording over your clients or anyone. It's, it's interesting. I had a situation last week I wanted to share with you, with everyone. I have a sibling who's in therapy, which is wonderful. I think everyone should be, but of course I would think that. But I think it really is. It's the hardest work you'll ever do, but it's the most important work you will ever do. And she was having an issue with her therapist, looking at the clock a lot or saying something she thought was insensitive. And she called me asking my professional opinion about that. And I was saying, you know, that you have to remember we're human. She may have to go to visiting hours to see a relative at the hospital. You have no idea what's going on. But Absolutely call her on it. It's a relationship like any other, only more important than any other, and you don't want to just call it a day and say you're done because of some some little rift. You have to be able to talk it through, and you can always let a practitioner or a therapist or a facility know this is something where, you know, we're all, we all have room for improvement, and we're all works in progress. And I've, you know, I talk to my clients about things if I feel they may be having a block up for some reason. Did I offend you? Did something upset you last session? Let's talk about it. Like any relationship like a marriage, like a partnership of any kind, it's, it, there's room for, there's wiggle room. There's room to work on things, on communication, and just to make sure you're respecting one another. And I think it's, it's really wonderful when, when Aloe House Recovery Centers, any recovery center, but particularly yours, the way that they look at the whole being, that the entire being, the whole person, and don't insist on that perfectionism because life is not perfect. It's not ever going to be. Life Far is in session it. at all times. Mm-hmm. It's true. And so, you know, and even our goals with uh, with young people, I mean, you look at, again, the history of drug treatment. And since, you know, Hazelden uh, first opened up, you know, mm-hmm. 60 years ago or something, and, you know, they still exist today and they're considered kind of the gold standard in, in treatment now. It's Hazelden and Betty Ford. Mm-hmm. You know, I bet they still have, uh, you know, the sort of 90% failure rate that you see, you know, as being pretty standard in drug treatment. So, you know, when when I say I'm obsessed to solve the the sort of riddle of addiction, sure we would love to uh, increase those success rates. We believe you know we're you know higher than the than the average in terms of those success rates. If you're using abstinence as the measure of success, mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. Uh, for for our program we use other measurements. I mean the biggest population right now uh, suffering from the worst problem are young adults. And the problem, of course, is with drugs. And sadly, mm-hmm. today, you know, with the new uh, bootleg fentanyl and 
things like this, you, you really don't know what you're getting. Kids are dying, and kids are, are dying en masse, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's you know, an epidemic, it, and it's terrifying. It's an epidemic. Mm-hmm. But the same young people, uh, many many of them have never worked. Many of them, if they have worked, haven't worked in years. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them now, you know, since the Affordable Care Act and the Parity Act in particular, have these, you know, insurance cards, and they basically travel around, sometimes travel around the country, you know, going to different treatment centers, and these Insurance cards are kind of like an American Express, you know, mm-hmm. to stay in a mansion and look at the view and eat the food and clean up for a little while and meet people and sometimes learn about new drugs they'd never tried before. Right. So we're really conscious of that, too. This this kind of revolving door of drug treatment where we're kind of contributing to this learned helplessness, I mean, mm-hmm. um, where all they have to do is, is relapse in order to come back to the treatment center. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so, again, if we're not part of the solution, we're part of the problems. We're very, very conscious and very aware of that. So we have other goals, and I'd almost say just as important as achieving and maintaining abstinence from drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. for, for these young people in particular is getting out into the world. I mean, getting a job. The, the ultimate kind of goal of treatment would be them, you know, opening their apartment the first night with their key, mm-hmm. you know, turning on the TV, you know, and and going to bed. Um, that's the ultimate <laughs> goal of treatment because, you know, if you're free from drugs and alcohol, well, that's great. But if you don't have a life, then it's really not enough. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a recipe for relapse. It's a recipe for disaster. And it's that's why I think that the sober livings and the IOP, which is intensive outpatient for anyone who doesn't know what that is, all of that is so important. And aftercare, which is what I do. I do aftercare counseling with so many facilities worldwide. And it's, it's great because I can do it on the phone. I can do Skype. I can see people in person. And I continue to do so. That's why I know so much about so many different modalities and facilities and what you guys are doing in there is because I'm private and I work in aftercare with them. And I think what happens after treatment is just as important as what happens during, if not more so, Absolutely. because they're on their own. More so. And having that structure and having, you know, whatever it is they need in order to lead a structured life and not have those same stumbling blocks and obstacles that put them where they were, it's just imperative. And that's such an important thing to teach. Now, I also wanted to ask you, Evan, if you don't mind, because I'd like to get a little personal, because of course that's what everybody likes to hear, is what were some of the issues that we spoke of that, that you suffered from? And you said you were around addiction problems all of your life, as was I. And tell me a little bit about what that journey was like for you. What problems did you grow up around? What were the stumbling blocks you dealt with? Because the family system where everyone is affected by one person's addiction or alcoholism or multiple addictions and, and, addiction and um, alcoholics, it can just be overwhelming. And it affects the entire family system, not just the one person. So let's talk a little bit about what your story is. Tell me a little bit more about you. I'd love to. And I, and I, and I do love sharing freely of my story. I, uh, you know, when I first got sober, I did come through the, the 12 step world. And, um, particularly for that first year, you know, it, it saved my life. Um, and one of the things I learned there was how to, you know, share openly and honestly without mm-hmm. any shame about my story because what I found, you know, in the first meeting that I went to, uh, listening to the speaker was that, oh my God, for the first time ever, I'm not alone. They're, they're like telling my story. They've been where, where I've been, 
whereas I thought I was completely alone. So, um, yeah, I'm happy to share. And so I remember, I mean, gosh, if I go way back, I I vividly remember at probably age four, Mm -hmm. I would get out of bed super early in the morning, go into the kitchen, pop a couple of sugar cubes, put a few spoonfuls of sugar in my mouth, and take the claw end of a hammer, you know, and ding the TV screen, dig it into the wall. There were books that had, you know, that I remember would be around for years later with these, uh, you know, hammer marks. I mean, that was just one day. Um, Later in in my life, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I was stealing uh, money to buy candy. I I stole from a friend right off of his... his desk in his room, his mom and him called me that night and said, did you steal? Because they knew the money was there. Did you steal this mm-hmm. money? No. No. You know, so I would learn how to lie to, to stay out of trouble, mm-hmm. uh, how to steal. And, um, you know, by the time I was about 14, well, when I was 14, uh, my mother actually committed suicide, which for anyone, and I think particularly a 14-year-old or young people, that was devastating. It was, I'm so uh, sorry. Just, I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank you. Yeah. It was just way, way too much. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much the beginning for me of, you know, real uh, experimentation with drugs. I mean, first it was probably cigarettes and then beer and then marijuana and then uh, LSD, um, you know, and that went on for many, many years in one form or another. Mm-hmm. You know, I would kind of trade one thing for another. Um and um, probably it, it was consi- it ha- that's how I lived my life until I was about 30. I'm 41 now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be sober uh, for 11 years on November 2nd. I got sober on no- November 2nd, 2005. Um, but what happened for me... Thank you. <laughs> what what happened for me? I mean, um, well, first of all, I'm Canadian. So mm-hmm. for any of our Canadian listeners, uh, they may appreciate this. I literally had no idea I had a problem um, until I was 30, until I crashed a car uh, in a blackout into a, another car w- with a person in it. And I mean, thank God I could have killed somebody. Or yourself or both or a family. Yeah, I mean, or seriously, myself, when you look a, back at the thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I remember coming to on the on the curb in handcuffs, um, kind of not knowing what was going on. I got filtered through, you know, first uh, I think the Rampart Division, uh, LAPD Police Department, mm-hmm. um, then went to the courthouse, uh, Superior Court downtown, and then uh, from there took a bus to uh, shackled with another man uh, beside me to LA County Jail, you know, where mm-hmm. I spent another few days. Um, you know, and I remember still thinking there, like, oh, you know, they've made some terrible mistake, um, you know, but there I was, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I probably deserved much worse than that. I remember telling my cellmate, you know, I think I have a problem uh, with drinking, and uh, I think I need to switch to beer. Oh, and, uh, just stepping it down a I little bit that. there. Yeah, so I mm-hmm. actually got out, and then uh, first night just drank some beer, second night drank some beer, third night, uh, you know, had some beer and then had a shot of something and, you know, was kind of off to the races again. Uh, I'm, by the end of the night, I'm trying to fight everyone. We're at Mel's Diner. I cleared an entire table of food onto the floor. Mm. Um, you know, I ended up home in bare feet, and what was funny is I woke up the next morning, couldn't remember any of that stuff. Felt actually fine, just 
was a bit weirded out, but I couldn't remember anything. My friend comes into my room. Um, he'd crashed on my couch or whatnot. Comes in and says, man, you're an alcoholic. And I said, what? And he started listing all these crazy things that I'd been doing, and I could remember them as he, as he listed them. But it was coming back to you? It was coming back to me, and, mm-hmm. and I was like, I am. And I know most people's experience isn't kind of like that. It's maybe more of a struggle, and I was mm-hmm. just very lucky, I think, that I, I just felt like, my God, there's finally a name for what I am, what I right. have. Every now and then a label's and, a good uh, thing, you know, to actually be able it to identify is a good it. Thing. Yeah, every now and then the label's just what it, you need. It is a good thing. So, you know, and then and my recovery journey since then, it's been, um, I remember uh, I had kind of a mentor uh, when I first got sober, and he said, getting sober is like this, you know, first uh, first it gets real, then it gets weird, and then it gets real weird. And, uh, you know, and in a good way, That's that's been my experience. You know, th- things I'm doing now were not even on my radar. You know, so as far as, you know, asking people, well, what are your dreams? What are your goals? I mean... It's funny because in, in all the midst of my own madness, I got a master's degree in community planning. And the irony is uh, all I learned in this life is that you can't plan for anything. It just kind of happens. Yeah, you really and, can't um, plan life. We, we like to you know. feel that there's an illusion of control. But those of us mm-hmm. that have gone through recovery, you know there's a higher power no matter what you want to call it. And we're not in control, and I forget until the chandeliers sway, and I think, oh, earthquake, that's right, we may not be here tomorrow. I mean, you just never know what the next day is going to bring, but we have this illusion of control, and you can't plan anything in a blackout, and you can't plan life in that state, and I just identify so much with what you said, with your friend walking in and saying, do you know all the stuff you did, and you're an alcoholic. I recall calling those the uh uh-ohs. I used to call it the uh uh-oh mornings back in the day, and I think, whose shoes are those? Why do I have her shoes and her shoes, my shoes, must be at her house. How did I get home? Going outside to make sure the car is parked properly in this narrow driveway parking space I had. And just the terrifying, the terrors that you have in the morning of what did I do? What did I say? Who did I call? And this was before cell phones. So it's not like you could just look and see who, would call, who you'd called or who was calling you. But you'd wonder when the phone rang the next day, do you have to apologize to anyone? What did I do? What did I say? Mm-hmm. And I called it the uh-ohs, those mornings of not knowing exactly where you were or what you did. And Freedom from the uh oh's is the ultimate, the ultimate in life, and like it you said, really it does is. start. And yeah, and it's a slippery slope. It starts with church camp and <laughs> Bel Air church camp and a closed yeah. cigarette, and it leads to Jack Daniels, this, that, and the other, just acting out and behaviors. And same thing. I just recall getting to a place of, what is this? This is enough already. This is not a way to live. There's another way to live, and uh, I'm just and grateful that neither of us know, killed anyone. You know, that's right. And for people who don't know the distinction, there's a really interesting one between blacking out and passing out. Sometimes they're they're confused, but for anyone who's experienced a blackout, I mean, you can drive a car. I'm not saying you can drive it well, but mm-hmm. you can, you know, you can go to work. Um, you know, it's a really scary thing, and you're just completely not at home. But it almost gives you a little peek into the fact that I don't think we are entirely in control of our lives. I think the, there's a certain amount of agency that we have, and I think people yes. ought to be empowered to make decisions at important crossroads and to have a good, strong set of values um, you know, that will guide them through those decisions. Mm-hmm. But f- for the most part, I think I do really honestly think things are happening and we're kind of happening along with them. I do think that humans have this interesting ability to reflect on 
um, our decisions and things that have happened and our lives and the world and the the way we describe the world that was the main thing I think that changed for mm-hmm. me you know on getting sober I mean I now didn't know anything um, which is I think a great kind of state of mind to be in that beginner's mind exactly. I, you know, I valued my relationships. I mean, I remember sitting in jail, just like I had maybe about three or four people that I really just wanted to call and couldn't remember their numbers, you know, because we did have cell phones in 2005 and right. I don't remember anyone's number, but I was just so lonely. And, and you know, and I and I really believe the in the importance of connection. I think we're, we're social beings. Mm-hmm. And again, coming back to Aloe House, it's one of the you know, if you were to boil down what we're all about here, I mean, it's empowering uh, people to, you know, kind of be in the driver's seat of their life, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really about community, you know, and it's about, it's about connection. You know, it's the connection our clients have with one another. It's the connection we have with our clients. And it's the connection, hopefully, we teach our clients to have with themselves, you mm-hmm. know, and to become at peace and feel at home with themselves and the world. Um, these are the most amazing things. And I think that, you know, again, kind of coming back to that thing where it's not just addicted people who are dealing with this today. I mean, I think that, you know, America, probably the greatest country in the world, you know, we've made famous this and very popular, this notion of the kind of cult of the individual, mm-hmm. you know, where it's the individual over everything. Mm-hmm. And you hear people kind of paying lip, lip service to family values, which, you know, that would be a bigger unit than, than one person. You'd hear about, you know, our safe communities and how important our communities are. But I really think people aren't connected. I, I think that the individual still reigns supreme and that uh, it, it's something we're all suffering from. And I think all over the world we're suffering from this kind of profound disconnection. Oh, I um, think so. I think it's extreme extreme disconnect, and a lot of it has to do with technology, which can be a gift and also a curse. And I can look from my balcony, I'm in a high-rise, I can look down at night, and everybody's head is, is kind of bent in that, in that terrible posture form, walking down the street. Oh. Everyone's looking at a smartphone, everybody's on a hoverboard well, with Pokemon earphones. Go. Yeah. It's like, I don't even, Pokemon Go, I mean, like, seriously, right? The country's falling apart and people are looking for Pokemon. Unbelievable. But it's, it's unbelievable the things I can see just from being up high in the heart of the city. It's kind of like Manhattan here where I am in the heart of Hollywood and in the Hollywood Hills, sort of. But you look down and you can see people walking their poodle with headphones on and <laughs> on a hoverboard and looking down at their device and they're completely disconnected even from their pet. Everyone is on this other level of disconnect. And we should talk about that some more. I'd like to come back and speak about that. We're going to take a quick break. And before we do, Evan, could you give out your website or any information where people can reach you? Yeah, people can reach us and check us out on the web and see our social media uh, links there as well at uh, www.allorecovery.com. Perfect. And anyone who wants to talk to me about this show or anything else, I can be reached at the real deal with Danielle at gmail.com or Danielle Delaney Counseling at, uh, oh no, just Danielle Delaney Counseling.com. Sorry about that. Okay. Well, we'll be right back in just a moment. We'll speak some more with Evan Haynes and we'll be back in just a few. Just a few. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better. 
But how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning into the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Do you or somebody you love have a struggle with abuse? You don't need to be a slave to your abuse anymore. Listen for Beyond Abuse, Beyond Therapy, Beyond Anything with Dr. Lisa Cooney. Dr. Lisa overcame struggles in her own life. Two decades of sexual, emotional, and physical abuse nearly took their toll. In her 20s, she turned her life around and set upon a path to help others. She can help you find the key to take control of your life, too. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. If you'd like to connect with Danielle, feel free to send an email to therealdealwithdanielle at gmail.com. That's therealdealwithdanielle at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back. You're back listening to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. And my guest today is Evan Haynes, who has a treatment facility, a drug treatment program called Aloe House Recovery Centers in Malibu, formerly known as Acadia Malibu, but it is now Aloe House Recovery Centers. Evan and I were just talking about the disconnection between human beings that leads to so much disharmony and discord. And I was saying how, you know, people are on their hoverboards with their headphones on and texting and all of it. And along with substances, I think there's all sorts of other addictions and addictive uh, mechanisms that people are sort of using. That's right. Everything that you, that you don't want and that you do want is in the palm of your hand right now. And for the younger generations, you know, for the people 17 and 18, that's tough. And for some older as well. So what do you think about that? I mean, I know it kind of adds to the disharmony and discord and disconnect out there. What do you think? Well, we, I was just talking about this um, yesterday with uh, Bob Forrest. So he's, he wanted, he's, oh, he's one of amazing. the founders of our program. He really is. He, for those of you who don't know him, he, he was kind of Dr. Drew's right-hand man on uh, Celebrity Rehab. They actually worked mm-hmm. together in real life, too, for many, many years before that. Uh, the guy with the hat, they sometimes call him. He's an old uh, rock and roller here in L.A. and uh, a gifted musician, but uh, I would argue an extremely gifted and maybe one of the best uh, drug counselors in the world. I think so. Um, I so agree. We, yeah. He's just, he's, he's known as a real plain talker. He's extremely authentic. Our clients love him. You know, and we were talking before about that kind of anti-authoritarian, um, kind of, uh, blood that, that, that a lot of people who suffer from addiction share. I mean, he perfectly embodies that. It's kind of like a punk rock, you know, rock and roll recovery, uh, so to speak. And, you know, we're always questioning things and we're all, you know, he's taught me more. He's been a personal mentor of mine, uh, for a number of years now, helped fund our program, or found our program, rather. Mm-hmm. And um, so we were talking yesterday about that, and he has a theory, and I thought it was interesting, that with young people today, they're also kind of almost being brainwashed to think that the world is so much worse than it is. I mean, you just need to turn on the TV, and certainly it's, you know, we're not in great shape. Um, right. But at the same time, and if you look out the window, you know, in a lot of other ways, it's really not that bad. And... 
if the world is going crazy, which, you know, arguably it may be, mm-hmm. what's stopping us from creating our own kind of islands of sanity? And, you know, I, I think that was something that you would see a lot in the 1960s and 70s. And, mm-hmm. you know, if anything, I think the time is ripe for, you know, these kind of countercultural, you know, um, subcultures to emerge and to provide, you know, a place, safe places, uh, places where people can feel, you know, their you know, that, that bond with their kindred spirits. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what I think is important. But it's true. I think he has a point that, I, you know, these young people today, they really have no hope. Um, you know, first of all, I mean, it's tough out there. You know, we're yeah. trying to get our clients out there, getting jobs and getting work. There aren't a lot, you know, but in a way, I think we can do this. We can maybe even create our own. Exactly, and I think community is so important with that, and also that just the keeping things in perspective. You know, a lot of the time we have first world problems, and these kids think that something's so terrible, or even we do. You know, I'm in my late 40s, and I can come up with some some disaster and catastrophize it in my own personal, you know, day. But it's really not that bad, and it's just sad to think of them as not having hope, because hope is where everything begins. You know, it just all begins with hope. And um, I remember as I was going through a lot of healing and and trauma from what had happened to me, my injuries from being kidnapped and thrown from this car and rape and all of it, I was staying with my mother who was so instrumental in my healing and recovery and I didn't want to come out of my room. I was just in a very dark place and was drinking and miserable and and just really feeling sorry for myself and she brought this rock into my room that said hope on it and I was like, get out of here with that rock. I don't want to see that rock and she said, you actually bought it for me which just stunned me because I had a head injury and I couldn't even remember having given her that but it glows because it was in the sun and when you bring it inside, the word hope would glow in the dark, sort of. Mm. And, um, and I couldn't even believe I'd had the kind of hope to buy some cheesy rock that said hope on it for my mother that she's now throwing in my face. But it just reminded me. She was like, everything's going to begin with hope. You have to have some hope. You can't be this lost. You have me. You have love in your life. You have people who care about you. You need a sense of community. You need a sense of belonging. And I would take walks on the beach because she lived at the beach. I got out of L.A. to heal, which was like a lobotomy. And um, mm-hmm. she's towards South Bay. And it just was something that was so imperative was to have hope and to watch exactly like Bob said to you, to watch the youth, a lot of youth of today not having any kind of hope. It's such a lost feeling. It's like a life raft is what they need. And I think... It really is. Yeah, and speaking to them about that, it's like a drowning person doesn't need a swimming lesson. They need a life raft, like immediately. And just being able to give them a little bit of that, of hope. And I think that's why I'm so open about everything I've been through. I have no secrets. I don't care. And I think it's because there's a lot of power. You know, words hold so much power, and our stories hold a lot of power. It's not to glorify or glamorize them. It's because people relate, and it's an example, a living example, of having hope and having a sense of community with some people and making that effort. I mean, it was a full-time job to heal and to recover and to recuperate and to get to a place of, I'm going to create the life that I like, that I don't want a vacation from, and that I want to help people with my history and, and you know, guide them from my experience mm-hmm. to what to do and go back to school for that. And I did. And I know that you have so much experience from your personal personal anecdotes as well. And it's really, it's not to glorify or glamorize it. It's just to relate to others and give them some hope. I think hope is really one of the most important components. It really is. It's true. And I mean, like you say, literally, you know, if we can do it, anyone can. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's nothing kind of special about me that is, you know, isn't special about someone else. Mm -hmm. And it's possible. And I think there's other factors too why, say, I never actually did, you know, use, say, 
intravenous heroin. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I had a grandma, kind of like you had your mom, mm-hmm. who, you know, sheltered me, I think, from a lot of the chaos that was going on when I was really young, you know, with, with uh, two parents, you know, my mom in particular, you know, having uh, mental health problems, addiction problems. And she saved me. I mean, I literally think she saved my life. And what's interesting is more recently I've learned about the um, adverse childhood experience studies, mm-hmm. which, you know, and again, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a doctor. I got into this, you know, through a really kind of strange series of events. Um, we have an <laughs> incredible team here who could speak to, you know, the clinical aspects of our program a lot better mm-hmm. than I could. But just as a layman, you know, and as an addiction professional, I'm very interested in the adverse childhood experience, ACE studies that were done mm-hmm. by Kaiser Permanente, of all mm-hmm. people. Um, and uh, it makes sense in, in terms of what addiction is. And uh, basically, you know, the adverse childhood experience, you could imagine it's divorce, it's abuse, it's neglect, mm-hmm. it's financial stress, it's addiction problems with your parents, mental health problems with your parents. And what they say and what they've actually determined through, you know, actual um, empirical study is that a young male, for example, who's had six adverse childhood experiences is something, and I'm probably messing this up, but 4,000 times more likely to use intravenous heroin than, than, say, a quote-unquote normal person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's um, one of my favorite addiction doctors, Dr. Gabor Mate, you know, and he's from Vancouver, where, where I am from and where I grew up, and he treated kind of the, you know, uh, most uh, kind of suffering people in Vancouver, on Vancouver Skid Row. And he said, for example, that in his many, many, many years of practicing medicine down there, mm-hmm. um, he didn't come across one woman, for example, who wasn't, who, you know, was going to be a uh, intravenous drug user who wasn't um, sexually abused, uh, you know, so... Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. I work with adults molested as children. That's one of my, my areas of, uh, that is a specialty. And let me tell you exactly, as you were saying these, this, these statistics, I was saying you're awfully close. You think you're off base, but you're not. You're very close to the exact statistics. And it is, um, it is statistically absolutely true that the more adverse events in the childhood, childhood trauma leads directly to addiction. And so many traumatic experiences that happen in childhood, including sexual abuse especially, um, just lead directly to it. And there's ways to rewire your brain. There's ways to heal from that. I believe strongly in EMDR therapy. That saved my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe in a lot of different modalities, but it is just a fact that sexual Sexual abuse is a huge root cause of so many, so many addictions and problematic behaviors and issues. And it's a very long journey and a very long recovery, but I have witnessed so many clients actually come face-to-face with their demons there and realize and recognize what's going on with them. And doing that inner child work, I did a show about that recently with Noah Rothschild, um, just doing a lot of that and reparenting ourselves and you know, working on that root cause and that, that first original injury. And once you x-ray the, the problem wound. and can find, a, find where the fracture is, that's when you can put a life back together. And it's so important to actually look back. You know, you don't want to look back constantly or you'll crash if you keep looking in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning of treatment, I think it's so important. It's an important part of the journey to peel the onion and to really look deep because 
although, I, like I said, it's the hardest work you'll ever do, but the most important, I always just implore my clients to go there because it's, it's where it begins and it's where the healing begins. Dr. Mate calls it, uh, you know, compassionate curiosity in terms of how we understand others. And, you know, he would say that the ultimate goal is to, in doing that, is to help understand ourselves more compassionately. So I see that going on a lot mm-hmm. here, you know, just as an observer watching our clinical team work, um, you know, and even with our staff. So say you have a client who's kind of, you know, acting out and having sort of quote-unquote behavioral problems, Um you know, we sometimes feel angry or that, you know, they, they don't, they're not respecting us and they're not respecting the rules and we need to punish them again. We kind of go back to that old model of treatment if we're not careful. But mm-hmm. instead, what we, you know, really rise to the occasion and try to do is to understand compassionately, like, you know, it turns out, oh, that person just went through something in, in family therapy last week that, of course, is leading to this, you know, pain, and they're literally right. acting out a drama, you know, that, that has been probably been on repeat for many, many years until until they can start to understand the roots of that drama and the roots exactly. of those kind of that interplay between the different characters that, you know, they've embodied in their body, their parents. You know, we embody our parents. We embody our entire upbringing. And just we absolutely finding do. peace between those aspects is You're so important. You're so correct about that. And I think that it's, it's really a mirror to look into and figure that out and, and, and kind of unveil that trauma and get in there and do the work and the repair. Because, you know, it's true that we are drawn to what scared us. We are drawn to what we were afraid of. It's human nature. And that opposite-sex parent also so often, you know, so important, and we're trying to reenact our history and come up with a new ending, a different ending. And you see people just repeating and repeating and repeating the same mistake. And it's kind of the same person with a different face if it's in relationships, Mm -hmm. or it's just they can't seem to get out of their own way, and they're self-sabotaging. And I find so often that that goes back to a childhood, uh, you know, an original injury there. And Mm -hmm. doing that work is the most important work in their lives. Now, I'd love to talk to you about these truly beautiful locations and ask you a little bit more about your past, because your aesthetic is... Beautiful. I mean, first of all, I love the horses and the alpacas and the dogs. I can't say enough about the dogs. The dogs were a dream. I didn't want to leave the last time I visited. Um, but it's just, uh, it's really beautiful there. And it's not just that it looks beautiful. It's that there's an energy about it that really is a warm, healing sort of energy. And I'd love to know how you came to make this Aloe House Recovery Centers. How did you make that what it is? And what, what was it your wife? Tell me about how you met your wife. Does she have something to do with that aesthetic? What is that about? Because it's really, it's really stunning. Well, thank you, first of all. And, and if I have anyone to blame, it's probably my parents. Um, <laughs> both of them are, were artists and are artists. Um, so I think I kind of came from that. Our place, like when I was growing up, was always kind of weird and interesting and beautiful. Mm. And... Um, so that that kind of is in my DNA almost, so, so mm-hmm. to speak. I have one funny story. I remember <laughs> years ago, um, I had done some magic mushrooms one night. I had the most incredible experience. Liked it so much, I thought, well, I'm going to do them the next night. Well, the oh. next night, they kind of turned on me. Things went a little dark. I remember telling my friend, I was sitting at his house, I'm going to go for a pack of cigarettes. And it's one of those things where I you know, go for a pack of cigarettes and I never come back. And uh, I walked all the way home. It was like five miles or something. He lived kind of on the the you know rough side of town, other mm-hmm. side of the tracks. And I'm walking back. I shared you know with some roommates like a flat 
in a house in the in the nicer part of town. And I remember when I first started walking, I was just terrified, and I had you know I had the fear. And uh, as wow. I get closer to my house, the architecture changes. There's more um, trees and plants, and uh, you know the uh, everything just kind of spread out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just had this feeling of well-being sweep over me. And at that moment, I realized how important the the built environment is to one's own kind of sense of well-being and how it mm-hmm. interplays with the psyche. So interestingly enough, years later, and of course I really think there was a direct kind of uh, path there, I went to school for planning, for urban planning, for community planning, you know, mm-hmm. because I believe that, you know, again, the our built environment has a huge impact on our psyche. And somewhere in between, I even came to understand, you know, my mother's problems, um, you know, with serious mental health problems. I mean, mm-hmm. schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, um, bipolar, and clinical depression. Mm. That you know, she was this amazing, funny, super intelligent, incredible artist. Um, you know, and she was extremely, extremely sensitive. And you know, so to a degree, I. I do believe that the world is a bit off, and mm-hmm. I believe that there's people who are so sensitive, they're kind of like, you know, the canaries in the mine or whatever, so to speak, but mm-hmm. they're like um, like a barometer for, we need to start listening to them, um, right. frankly, because I think, you know, if the world was a bit of a different place, we wouldn't see as much suffering. I know suffering to a degree and pain in particular is a part of life. But, you know, so much of this is needless, and I think we have the ability to improve our environments, to improve things for one another, and that this place could be a lot more like the paradise it is if you look around, certainly if you look around Malibu. So that's kind of the background for some of the aesthetic there. Mm -hmm. Um, We really do care about our clients, so we want them to be very comfortable. We want them to feel that sense of well-being, you know, that that one does in a in a beautiful environment with where people have put care into and concern into you know how they're living, where they're living. Um, so that's a huge thing about it. Um, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. No, yeah, it's amazing. Being a child from. of an artist is always an, an adventure. My mother is a mm. she carves mm-hmm. stone and welds. She carves alabaster and mm. and paints and welds and works in all these different artistic modalities. And my father is a, a famous doctor, but he's also a very well known jazz musician. He's amazing. So growing up with music, medicine, art, all of that, it colors your world. It really does. And genius really does. and madness are very close to each other. So as you said, you know really. your mother having all of these dual diagnosis co-occurring disorders, all these things in her history. And clearly, I, it sounds like your father also had some sort of, of uh, dual diagnosis type stuff going on that le- led to his demise. Well, and he just... only drinks, he's, he's funny, he only drinks after five, so God bless him. Oh, um, really? He drinks a lot. He's a big guy, and again, he's Canadian, so we, we have... Oh, and it's your mother who, 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 who passed. It's your mother who, who, who committed suicide? My mother suicide? passed away. Okay. Yeah, I'm so, so my sorry. dad, okay, he, he drinks after... He, no, that's okay. So he drinks after five. Mm-hmm. My stepmom is so funny. She's always on. I'm like, you got to go to the doctor, get tested. He recently went, got all his levels tested, <laughs> and he's as healthy as an ox. So just goes to show you, you never wow. know. Wow. I mean, it's different for but everyone. But that same idea, that same idea, though, we, we believe there's almost a, we've taken this cultural element from Canada where I think we're much less quick to institutionalize one another. Mm-hmm. We've taken that here and kind of embodied that with Aloe House Recovery Centers, 
you know, we're here if you need help. We don't know if you have a problem. I mean, we're really not here to kind of label or talk down to anyone, you know, or, you know, um, it's, it's that if you need help, we're here. Mm-hmm. And that's the way to do it. I mean, people are the expert on their own lives. They know their history. They know what they're thinking. They know what's going through their head. They know what their problems are or the, the stumbling blocks they can't seem to get around or they keep, keep encountering the same ones. And they really are the expert to inform me of what to do for their treatment. And it's always helpful to come, as you said, with a beginner's mind. I believe in that as well. You know, be, being jaded and thinking you know everything, it's the beginning of the end. I've had, <laughs> I've had therapist friends like that that I thought I looked up to, and then it turned out they were no, they're know-it-alls at some point, and that's when they need to get out mm-hmm. of that business, when they think they know everything. Right. And, you know, that's not true. This person's not narcissistic. And, they're not, and they've only seen them once. It's like, cut, you know, give me a break, listen, open your mind, come in with a beginner's mind. And I think having 10 years as a practitioner instead of 16 has actually been to my benefit and that I've jumped around from I started with rape crisis and molestation and then started studying addiction and recovery and then got more into life transition and all sorts mm-hmm. of other areas and theology and divinity and spiritual counseling and getting my doctorate in this. So. Mm-hmm. It's, it's completely different, and I think that way I'm always a beginner, which is why I'm always adding to the education, because I think it's very dangerous to get into that mindset that you know everything and you've been doing this forever. It's a dangerous place to come to clients with, and it's a dangerous place to come to your own life with that. So um, I also true. wanted I mean, to I ask think we have you. To be... hmm? Sorry, go on. No, no, it's okay. Well, I was, was going to say, say I, I think it's... I think it's there's got to be a spirit of us kind of figuring this out together. I yes. Mean, sure. We're, yes. we're 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 here to mentor you. We're here to guide you. That that dynamic is is important to a degree, mm-hmm. but not so important that you forget the fact that we're here just figuring this out together. No one solved. Again, I come back to the riddle of addiction treatment. You know, if the best kind of results we get is a ten to twenty percent success rate, mm-hmm. no one knows what to do. We we're only I think just beginning to understand what it is. And so, therefore, what's the harm in experimenting and, you know, really figuring it out together? Right. There is no one right answer, and it's teamwork. It is not, it's not, listen to me, I know everything, and I'm going to guide you, and I am the oracle. I mean, I'm not the oracle. I can't, I don't know everything. I don't know all of your history. I only know what you tell me. Like with anyone else, can we really know another person? We only know what they show us. And we're all such an enigma, you know, each of us, that it is a puzzle to figure something out like that, and you need to come at it with a teamwork kind of vision of, you tell me what works. You tell me what you're not liking about your treatment. Tell me what works for you. Let's talk about it. Let's, you know, put together a plan. And if that's not working, let's put together a new plan. And it just can't be coming from a know-it-all kind of place. And I think that that's so important. Having an open mind and a beginner's mind is so important. And I wanted to ask you, because as my practice, my private practice, and my sober companioning business have both grown, Aloe House, as mine has grown, has grown and expanded exponentially, but not in that icky corporate sort of way that some of these places expand and suddenly it's like there's no personal touch anymore. It's not that. Mm -hmm. It's just I remember coming and it was one place and then it completely spread out and Rachel Corbett, who's amazing, took me on a fantastic tour and I didn't want to leave. It was just all these different areas for treatment of different kind of conditions there. And how did that come Mm -hmm. to expand? It seems like it happened quickly, but it's happened beautifully. It really isn't in that corporate kind of way. What's next for you? How did that happen? We're we're in our fifth year. We we started out, Jared and I, uh, my partner here, opened up one sober living house. We like lived in the house and hung out with the clients 24 seven. 
and mm-hmm. you know put so much heart into it. We, we really did care. We still do. The trick is, and the secret of our success, I suppose, is finding people. Well, first of all, who know more than we do about addiction treatment. <laughs> One of the kind of pitfalls of having, I think, a non-clinician owning a center is that you know we kind of know our limitations and and we know where to step back. You know, mm-hmm. for example, we don't weigh in on clinical decisions at all. Um, we've empowered our team of, of managers and, and clinicians to basically run the place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we just slowly grew. I mean, we grew. We had two sober livings. We um, then got licensed uh, in one of our houses, opened up another transitional house. So we have different transitional houses, one for older, more mature, say, professionals, one for young people, with, with which is the one you saw with the organic farm and the mm-hmm. alpacas Beautiful. and the horses, all rescued animals. Beautiful. Um, so, we're, so we just kind of grew organically. We've never had kind of like uh, investments or loans of of really any kind that we haven't paid back. I mean, small small loans along the way, but we grew. All of our growth has been organic, and it's just that we've grown without losing our heart, and that's I think the key to that is to the our key success and to mm, to why we I think stand out from the herd a little bit. I yeah, mean, you so can much feel it when you're there. You really either. can, Evan. You can feel it. Thank you. You're quite welcome. On the one hand, I think you know. Treatment has gone corporate. I don't understand mm-hmm. how that works because I know how kind of grassroots and intensive and hands-on we are, and we still don't reach everybody. We try, and we still can't connect with everyone. So I don't know how you would do that with a sort of corporate, uh, you know, overlord. And the staff morale is low. The turnover is high. I just don't know if if the secret to addiction treatment, which which I believe it is, is to connect with people. Then yeah, I, I don't know how you do that on a corporate scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the other hand, you know, on, on the other side, kind of, of or another ugly face of treatment is is this sort of like fly-by-night places that have opened up, you know, to take advantage of insurance dollars to do, you know, basically insurance fraud. And right, there's some you know, brokering of patients going on. It's terrible. There's another uh, epidemic of that happening. It's the sickest. It's the sickest thing you've ever seen. It's and, disgusting. Uh, you know. They're starting to crack down on it, so I hope, you know, we see the end to it, and I hope we see a return. I mean, probably, well, so in the last month, just let me give you an example, we had 31 new new clients, five of whom came off of the Internet. Yeah, it's it's interesting how that works. Professionals in the community. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, Evan, we're going to have to wrap up, and I'd love to have you back another time and talk to you more about your life and the future of Aloe House and just how fantastic it is there and the work you're doing there. It's really, really kind of remarkable, and it's different from anywhere else that I've been. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Danielle. It's been an honor to be on your show. I could go on all day. <laughs> uh, I'd love to, to talk some more. So. I told you it goes fast. Well, we'll have you back again. (laughs) Thank you. And everyone have a wonderful week. And until I speak to you again, be well and do well. Take care. Thanks for joining us this week. Be sure to catch The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney live every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We can't wait for you to see what's in store next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.